subscribe and rate it. Five stars. Thanks to Next Evo for supporting our show. Try Next Evo Naturals, capsules, gummies, mints, and topical creams. Get a better start to the year with products like their Stress CBD Complex. Go to nextevo.com slash podcast and use promo code BIGFOOT to get 20% off your first order of $40 or more. Hi, Bobo. How you doing today, man? Oh, pretty good. Yeah, nothing's ruined your day? And it's, God, you made it almost all the way through the day. Anything going on? I mean, I haven't talked to you for a little while here. Do you have, you have a, a good New Year's Eve and all that jazz? I was supposed to go to Hamels, and then the old showrunner from Finding Bigfoot, Hamill, has a New Year's party, but they canceled it this year because there's going to be that big storm, and, uh, and they just went out to dinner at a friend's house instead. So I just chilled with uh, the folks. Oh, that's good. That's good. And, of course, that's Chad Hamill. He was a guest on um, our Bigfoot and Beyond podcast here, um, I don't know, like a year or two ago. So if you want to hear straight from a producer's mouth who had to work with all of us, um, it's a pretty funny episode, I think, too. Chad's a great guy and a super funny guy. So you're hanging out with the folks. Uh, how are they doing? Oh, you know, My mom's doing really well. My dad's got dementia, so... Slowing down a bit? Yeah, he slowed down a lot. Yeah, well, you know, he was burnt. His name's Fireball for a reason, and yeah, who burn hot, you know, burn short sometimes. So, well, he's he's going to hit ninety in a couple months. Oh man, good job, Fireball. That's fantastic. Yeah, nice. And of course, Fireball was featured on a Finding Bigfoot episode, the one that was called Big, uh, Bobo's Backyard. Yeah. Um, Yep, that so we sat <laughs> Fireball down and talked about the young Bobes and showed some pictures. That's a, that was a fun episode. My mom had him so kowtowed into not saying anything like, don't embarrass the family, don't tell them anything embarrassing. I'm like, that's exactly what they want to hear. They want to hear all the embarrassing stuff. And he held back pretty good. <laughs> good. And that's also the episode we found Sochi on. Yep. Yep. Cliff's dog. Absolutely. Well, yeah, we uh, Melissa and I just hung tight to the house on uh, New Year's Eve. Didn't do a whole lot. Been working ever since pretty much, you know, because I work most days here at the shop. I did get to the woods, though, um, this past week, and then last week, too, which was kind of nice. Explored a new area in our in one of our spots we call Easter Island. Um, this past week, we got uh, Warehouser permits. Warehouser is- Oh, you a, did? Yeah. Warehouser is a big logging company in the, in the Pacific Northwest, and um, most of their land is closed off. It's private land, but once a year, they open it up for permits, and they have driving permits that cost like 300 bucks, and they have walking permits that cost 100 bucks, and they only open it up- I mean, I don't know how long it's open for. It doesn't matter how long their permitting thing is open for because they all sell out almost immediately. Um, I popped on the very same day, like about an hour or two or three after um, after I heard it was open. A friend of mine who gets the driving permit every year said, Cliff, I just got my drive." He texted me. I just got my driving permit uh, for warehouser land. That means he could drive a car side by side or whatever he wanted to do, to, wanted to do back there in the logging land. And by the time I logged on, they were already all sold out. So I ended up getting a walking permit. So um, I bought a walking permit, got a couple more for museum folks, and they bought their own too. Um, And so we've been exploring these areas um, that we've never gone into in one of our best research zones. So far, we've only been um, privy to uh, National Forest Land. Um, and this is the place where we've cast four footprints over the last two years, where my guys had a sighting in October, I mean, uh, August rather. So it's a really good area. 
you know, four prints in one area for in two years, plus a sighting, plus sounds and all this other stuff. That's a hot area. Um, but there's all this land that, that we have not been able to go on because we're not going to go trespassing around and stuff. We don't want to get tickets or anything. And, you know, that'd be bad for us. It'd be bad for us financially. It'd be bad for the museum image, et cetera, you know? Dude, I don't know. Anyone, I don't know. anyone that gets tickets on those places. Like there's, there's so few people out there nowadays compared to, you know, they don't have the security they used to at all. No, I've never seen anybody. I mean, I've been out a few times now and I've never seen anybody on the land. There's, although there are tire tracks out there sometimes. I'll see, I'll see like forest techs and biologists and stuff, but like and foresters, but the old like guys, the old, you know, timber company guys, their job was just go around and make sure the machinery's not getting messed with and, you know, no, no illegal cutting, that kind of stuff. I never see those guys at all ever anymore. Almost, almost, almost never. Well, you know me, man. I'm not going to go playing around with the law. You know, I, uh, I don't want to mess with them. This part of my baggage. You know, my dad was a cop, so if whenever I feel like I get a sp- whenever I get a speeding ticket, I feel like I let him down somehow. You know, it's one of those things. But yeah, so we've been poking around and um, pushing down in the roads and stuff, and just exploring the area to see what's going on. I haven't found anything. Um, only been out twice in the last couple of weeks in those particular areas, but uh, you know, that's that's kind of the new focus right now since uh, our normal spots. You, we can't get to at this point because you have to go over some passes and then they're under snow as well. Since we can't get to the normal spots where we've been finding the stuff, at least until there's a good melt, um, we've been looking at the adjacent land, which is largely a uh, warehouser land. So it's kind of cool. Right on. Yeah. Yeah. Still getting out there. Still, still doing what we can. All right. Well, Hey, let's get down. Hey, hey T-Bone, let's get down to the meat of the things here. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, and, and I want to welcome our guest on today. Um, his name is Kevin Llewellyn. He is a longtime BFRO investigator. He's a Bigfoot witness. He, um, s- he saw Sasquatch and then cast footprints immediately afterwards. Um, and he's been doing it a long time. And I want to st- start out the interview with a little bit of his history. But first, Kevin, thank you so much for coming on Bigfoot and Beyond with me and the Boves, man. Lovely to have you here. Hey, Kevin. Oh, hey, thank you for having me. <clears throat> I'm honored. No, you shouldn't be honored. You should just, you know, be, be yeah, I don't know. I don't know what you should be, but honored certainly is not it. So, <laughs> well, anyway, thank you so much for coming on. Have you met um, Bobo before? I never have. Yeah, I was, I was going, I know I've heard the name for years and years and I, I know we know the same people all over the place and I'm like, I don't know if I've actually hung out with them or not. Yeah, we've got to, um, we've got to get out there and camp together or something, but yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't attend a lot of conferences, you know, no, no offense to the conference organizers, but I'd rather be in the woods. (laughs) So totally. Oh, I understand. I wouldn't go unless they paid me. (laughs) It turns out they do. So I go to a lot of them. Are you going to, uh, there's one in Spokane and that's your hometown or I don't know if it's your hometown. That's not where you grew up. I, I don't know if it is or not, but that's where you live now. Um, there, are you going to go to the Spokane festival in what is it? Probably April or May or something. I don't remember when it is. Again, I'll be in the woods at that time. We've already got, yeah, we have a thing that, um, yeah, that with, uh, several other investigators and, um, so yeah, my calendars is pretty full, um, you know, already. So going into the summer, uh, through spring and summer and just getting out there, um, getting with other investigators and just camping, um, going camping with my wife and stuff too. Um, but yeah, I live in Spokane, Washington, um, which is in Eastern Washington. And I grew up in a, a small town in Spokane County here. And I graduated from Washington state university college of veterinary medicine. I was a veterinarian for 35 years 
and I'm retired now, uh, so that means more time in the woods. Uh, like last fall, uh, you know, October on up to Thanksgiving, uh, the fall hunting seasons were in full swing in Northeast Washington, and so forest grouse, wild turkey, deer, elk. So I was probably in the woods, you know, three out of every four days on average um, there for, you know, many weeks. That's fantastic that you're spending time boots on the ground. I didn't know, I didn't know he was a doctor too, a doctor of veterinary. That's a, I didn't realize you had those credentials. Right. Yeah. It, you know, so I approach things, uh, of course, because I have that biology background, the anatomy background, the veterinary medicine background, you know, animal behavior when it comes to, you know, the pets. And so, yeah, I just, that combined um, then drives my thinking. Um, and, and also all those years of keeping medical records on the pets. So taking reports and, and of course, then talking to the clients, uh, in, you know, I hate to use the word interview the clients, but the pets couldn't talk to me, obviously. Well, I was going to say, how do you interview a client if you're talking to a you know, golden retriever? Yeah. So it's like, yeah. So I, I have to, you know, um, have to talk to the uh, clients and, and really dig for the details, you know, and, um, and, and sometimes keep digging, um, you know, like, like when the husband and wife are there in the exam room and, and I'm like, you know, okay, you know, now really what, what's with, you know, the, your diet here for your dog, you know, if something's upsetting your dog, what, what's happening, you know? And finally the husband says, well, yeah, I do share a bowl of ice cream with him every evening. And then of course the look on the wife's face you know, it's, um, I'm not trying to cause a divorce, but, you know, I'm just digging for the facts. Let the chips fall where they may. <laughs> well, but, you know, things like that. Um, but yeah, and then just, you know, having the veterinary background, just having a, a, a rule out list then too, you know, what what's at the top of, of the rule out list? What's the number one thing? So, you know, what was that howl then in the woods, you know? Was that really Bigfoot, or what goes to the top of the list? I have a, I have a question for you, real quick, Kevin. Do you uh, did you ever uh, come across like any animal psychics, or like people that like seem to be telepathic with their their pets and knew things that they shouldn't have known, or you know what I mean? Like something showed up on X-rays that wasn't obvious to you, as a they, the person told you that they thought that was something was wrong there, or anything like that. N- not that I never have have that, but but. Boy, the connection with, you know, with like dogs and, and the owners, I mean, you know, maybe you've heard that the dog can sense a seizure coming on in the owner before the owner, you know, the owner has no clue that a seizure is coming on, but the dog senses it. And so things like that, it, that's all true. Um, and so, like I say, you know, you may see reports about dogs can detect diabetes and so it's all true um you know i saw all that um you know every week every day uh the connection with the the pets and their owners i've heard they can smell cancer in some cases as well yeah it's you know there's those if there's those certain molecules those certain things dog will sense that and a little bit of training or or just repetition and then, yeah, it's amazing how, you know, how animals, uh, what they can do, what we don't realize they can do. And so, you know, same thing with Bigfoot. I mean, I, hey, I admit right away, they're smarter than I am. And so, this, you know, the stuff that they can do. So 
Yeah, well, they don't pay taxes, as Bobo says. They must be smarter than us. Hmm. <laughs> oh, boy, yeah. <laughs> you know, Tyler, do you know Tyler Bounds, Kevin? Yes. Yeah, Tyler uh, would tell me that, you know, he was, uh, for many years, he was our camping tech on the show. So he'd be on the road with us when Finding Bigfoot. And um, he had a dog at the time, and the dog would be really depressed while uh, Tyler was gone. But Tyler was sharing with me that about a a week, maybe a little less than a week, before Tyler would be able to return home on break, you know, for those two weeks that we had off or whatever, the week or two that we had off in between between runs, um, his dog would start perking up. And even to the point where the day before, the dog would be really playful and be looking out the window all the time. Or at least that's what the dog sitter would told told Tyler at the time. And I always thought that was really interesting. You know, whatever sort of connections there might be there, the dog seemed to be pretty clued in on it. It couldn't have been smell, you know, because Tyler was in across the country in Tennessee or somewhere. So it couldn't have been smell. But there's something there might wouldn't be a bit surprised if there's something else kind of weird going on with that. It's kind of cool. That's amazing. Um, yeah, last time I saw Tyler, it was uh, would have been well. Now we're into a new year, so it would have been um, the fall, summer of, of 2021, and we were camping together in the Washington Cascades. And uh, he worries me a little bit because he sleeps and he wraps himself up in this hammock between two trees, and I'm afraid that he might look like a, a human taco to a bear or a burrito, rather. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I mean, boy, that's. Uh, I wished I could do more of that too, and just you know, sleep in a hammock um, because, boy, you know, have my thermal imager right there, and if a bigfoot bigfoot tries to come into camp, um, you know. Hopefully he'll come up and, and give Tyler a shake. Yeah, just to kind of test what he is. <laughs> test bite so we get some DNA. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pull some hair out. And I imagine being a veterinarian must have a lot of benefits when looking into other animals, Sasquatches, for example. Um, want to get into that to see what else might be useful from your background there in a minute. But I'm super interested in your formative years in Bigfoot because uh, I, I know you because, um, well, we've met a few times, I guess, over the years, but um, you reached out to me because you had some original artifacts you wanted to donate to the North American Bigfoot Center, which of course we happily accept. We accept all donations, but yours were fantastic. I mean, uh, beyond exquisite. It's just fantastic. Um, you, you, of course, gave us your uh, original certificate for um, the Roger Patterson um, Northwest Research Association um, with your name on it. Like you, you were there. Like You saw Roger Patterson present um, his film and do a talk on it at the Spokane Coliseum in, what, 1968? Uh, Dr. Jeff Meldrum was also in the crowd. I don't suppose you met him at the time. You were both like 11 or something. And you became a member of Roger Patterson's, um, you know, not fan club, like research association um tell us about that of like how you like how did the patterson gimlin film first cross your 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 mind like your your pathway and tell us about how you came about going to what do you remember from that night and those events well yeah i have vivid memories still um and and true dr meldrum uh, was there you know I, when i read got when his book came out and i read um that uh, in his introduction he mentions that he was in the spokane coliseum and saw roger patterson in person and i'm like i was there too and so and i've talked to dr meldrum and, and he's even told me you know where he lived in spokane for a while but yeah i was like i say um grew up in a small town uh, in spokane county and uh, i saw roger patterson uh, at the spokane coliseum then in person and he was, you know, of course, center stage. Um, I remember 
that there were, were two or three other guys on the stage to my left. And I don't remember them doing anything, ever, ever doing anything, but there were these other guys standing there. And of course, everybody in cowboy boots and cowboy hats. And I'm listening to these cowboys talk about being in the woods and the mountains looking for this thing called Bigfoot. And, you know, there I was 10 years old, 10 year old boy. And I'm just thinking, you know, I got to be a cowboy. And I still remember when they uh, started the film clip of Patty and my brain, I still remember my brain just saying, look at that animal. Look at the way it moves. That's not a guy in a costume. You know, look at that animal. How big was the screen they showed it on? Large. And I, I, I don't know whether they, whether my, my focus went to her face when she did the famous turn and look back. Um, but I just remember that that huge face and I was hooked and you know and afterwards then too I got his autograph Roger Patterson's autograph which you also generously donated to the museum here yeah and so I I put away uh well and then uh or first of all I I was hooked and I you know kept my ears open uh for any sightings then in eastern Washington or wherever uh you know things that would come through the grapevine. I know that's not the proper way to get information, but back then, you know, we didn't have smartphones. We didn't have social media. So it was the dark ages and I just had to keep my, my ears open. And, uh, and sometimes our newspaper, local newspaper would carry articles in too about Bigfoot. But, um, but yeah, then a little bit later, I signed up for Roger Patterson's uh, Northwest Research Association, and he sent, periodically sent out bulletins. I'll probably refer to them as newsletters as we keep talking. But yeah, the things that he wrote in those newsletters, he was way ahead of his time. His thoughts and the things he wanted to do and we're still doing those today. Roger cast a number of footprints around the Yakima area. He was interviewing witnesses or reel-to-reel tapes of Roger's uh, um, interviews. He was the first person to do call blasting, period. The first one. Yeah, the things that he wrote, that was, those are the things he wrote about um, in, in some of the newsletters. Of course, there was a lot of, of, of mentioning of sightings and that and the locations and the dates of sightings that in those newsletters also. But, um, but yeah, he was, would talk about putting out bait lines and then checking them the next morning, you know, for tracks under the bait. Uh, he, he worded it like um, doing, uh, uh, experimenting with sound um, uh, techniques, I think was the way he worded it. Um, he said, um, you know, checking, of course, along streams, looking for tracks. Um, he, he said, and sometimes just sitting and waiting. That, those were the things that he had planned to do on expeditions and to do out there in the woods. Are those newsletters, are they compiled somewhere? Aren't they compiled? Didn't someone put them like in one kind of journal folder thing? Not that I'm aware of. We have them here at the museum. We, I don't know if we have a complete set, but we have a darn near complete set at least because Kevin gave us some of those. We have a few others lying around from uh, other researchers' collections. How many did he print? Do you know? Like how many volumes are... I had seven originals and my original uh, membership certificate and his autograph that I got that night. And yeah, I donated them to the North American Bigfoot Center. And I want to thank Cliff again for you know making a fantastic display. They're protected under glass. Um, but but the last several years, I thought you know I I need to 
get these out there. I need to share them. You know, I need to, to have them go somewhere. And so, yeah, thank you again, Cliff. Um, oh, thank you, Kevin. Yeah, great, great display uh, of that history. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Yeah, Cliff, you know, they say that stress is the new smoking. It's so damaging to your health. Oh, yeah, man. It destroys your health. I mean, it, it does me. Uh, it's hard to even recognize it sometimes. Yeah, that's why I'm stoked on this next Evo. They're uh, CBD products. I've been taking other CBD products for a long time. And these guys have their own patented technology, Smart Sorb. Next Evo Naturals is the most clinically studied CBD brand, and their Smart Sorb technology can help you get a better start to the year with products like their Stress CBD Complex. Yeah, and you've been doing this for a few weeks now, Bubs? Next Evo, yeah. I've been doing it you know, after a couple of weeks. I'm like, I really feel calmer, less stressed, I'm more relaxed. Now, they have a, different, a bunch of different forms as well, capsules, gummies, mints, and all this sort of thing. Um, do, you, do you have one that you prefer? I prefer the capsules. Yeah, go check out their webpage because they got a variety of Nextevo products, you know, for less stress, better sleep, or boost your daily wellness. They got, they got it covered. Stress CBD Complex has both Smart Sorb CBD and a patented whole plant ashwagandha. Clinically proven to reduce stress by up to 70% and improve concentration by 50%. Yeah, this isn't just a bunch of hippies, you know, in some barn slapping stuff together. This is scientifically formulated by a consumer product team with decades of experience, and each product is tested to rigorous standards. Only Next Evo uses SmartSorb CBD, proven for 30 times better absorption in the first 30 minutes. If it's not absorbed, it can't help you. But Next Evo is different. It delivers four times better overall CBD absorption and has been proven in multiple clinical studies. Yeah, if you're interested in this kind of product, you can make CBD a part of reaching your full potential with Next Evo Naturals for the coming year. Go to nextevo.com slash podcast and use promo code BIGFOOT to get 20% off your first order of $40 or more. That's 20% off $40 or more at nextevo.com slash podcast with the code Bigfoot. And I thought it was so funny, um, and I, I don't know, how, you probably think the same thing, or maybe funny is not the right word, but you know, a year before, the, before you donated these items to us, um, we had another donation, um, which was a, an advertisement poster for the, the same event you attended. Uh, the Roger when Roger Patterson was touring with the film in probably '68 or something like that, um, he made a number of posters, and you know he was going a little on the cheap because the poster we have, which is beautiful and large, it's quite quite large, like three and a half feet by maybe two and a half feet or more. Um, it, it mentions the Spokane Coliseum and the Portland Coliseum, so he's kind of double dipping there on the posters. But they must have been pretty expensive to make back in the day, and um, that was also um, it's on display, it's on loan actually from um, Dr. Russ Jones, another friend of the podcast here um i don't know where he got it man but it, it's just um, amazing and then of course you come along and um you have an autograph from roger from that same event we have the advertisement for so we display them together um and it's just a, what a really neat um combination of artifacts that could be on display for people to enjoy here yeah i've seen that poster and, and at the bottom i believe it says you know like you say portland coliseum uh spokane coliseum uh, and I think it says uh, all over the Northwest uh, because he did a tour. He went around the Pacific Northwest. 
Very interesting. I wonder who those other people are. I bet, I bet Aldi Atley was one of them. Um, that would be my guess. And uh, maybe Dennis Jen- Jenkins or somebody like that because they were palling around quite a bit back then. Um, and then maybe the actor who played Bob Gimlin because Bob wasn't on the tour. They just hired some other guy to pretend he was Bob. I've heard that. And that's what I've, I've thought, you know, over the years that I thought, you know, I, I don't remember them. I don't remember him introducing those other guys, but I just remember there were, there were other guys on, uh, on stage too. How long did the presentation last? You were having, I mean, you were 10 years old and it's a while ago and whatnot, but what's your best guess? What, what's, what do you feel that, uh, how long did this thing go on? Oh, his heart. And I don't remember. Um, of course I know he, you know, um, and I don't remember everything that he said either, of course, but, um, he, you know, I know he was, was like I say center stage and I'm sure he was, you know, setting up the, uh, setting up for the film and telling about, you know, what they were, had been doing and, and everything like that. And, and, uh, the situation then that happened. Do you remember uh, anything specifically he said, is there anything that sticks in your mind? Like he said something that you know, has always stayed with you. I don't. I just because I think when they started uh, playing the film clip, <laughs> my, you know, my brain was just whoa, <laughs> look at that. Did he play it? Uh, did he play it like many, many times? Like start, stop, like play like a little clip and explain it, and then play a little bit more and explain it, and then rerun it back and show the whole thing over again. Like how did how did he do it? Yeah, I can't remember if how many times they they played it. Um, all I know is that, and like I say, I don't know if they even had a, 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 a spot where they kind of zoomed in on, on her face or, but cause I remember too, that, you know, just that huge face, uh, up on the big screen and, and yeah, I was just, you know, I was just hooked. I was like, wow. How cool, man. Yeah. To see the history unfold like that. You're, you're, you're very, very lucky guy, Kevin. That's great, man. Now you were still living in the Spokane area. Um, at, I'm assuming for years to come. I don't know if you, did you ever leave? Or are you are you still there? I mean, is that that's how it worked, or did you go away? Uh, no, I had my practice here, my veterinary practice, and and I'm retired here now. And so, yeah. Then shortly after that, says Bigfoot has suddenly burst upon your radar as a thing. Um, were you aware of the Bossberg incidents that were happening in 1969 and 1970, just a half hour, 30, 40 minutes north of Spokane in Bossberg, Washington? Were you aware of that at the time through newspaper accounts or anything? Oh, yeah. And in fact, when I was in high school then, I don't remember the exact year, but again, I was kept my ears open for any sightings. And there was a sighting um, then uh, right at, at, at sunset uh, along this one highway north of Bossburg. And there was this place, a wide uh, turnout uh, off of the highway. And the county or, or state, you know, used to set out garbage cans. Well, guess what the sighting was? <laughs> Bigfoot, you know, in the garbage can, digging into the garbage cans. And so you know, that just, you know, that went through the grapevine, you know, like crazy. And, and I'm like, I know exactly, you know, then where that is. And I go right through those areas uh, to an area where my dad had been camping and hunting and fishing before I was born. So I've been going to the, that one area, um, you know, since I was just a little kid. Um, and then now, um, seven miles, uh, straight line. Um, I don't always like to say that because there's a lot of terrain, you know, on a map uh, in seven miles, but seven miles, a straight line from Bossburg. Uh, my wife and I own some acreage. 
So we can, yeah. So, you know, we have our own little spot where we can, we don't need permission to go. And, um, yeah. I don't suppose that place along the highway is, uh, what was it called? China Point? It's south of there. South of there. Okay. And the reason I bring that up is because China Point is uh, um, it's a pullout. I think it's a boat launch now. I was there last year um, when I was doing a little follow-up investigation on the Bossberg incidents at the time. It turns out, I believe it was across the river, which the, the, the Columbia River. It's called Roosevelt Lake at that point because they dam it up, I think. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong about any of this stuff. I'm just going by what I, I think is accurate. I'm not always accurate, though. I just do my best. Um, but across the river from China Point is the general vicinity um, where John Susamil, the Border Patrol agent, independently found and cast two footprints of the Bosberg creature, the, the Cripplefoot creature at the time. Because um, the, 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 the casts that are mostly traded around or whatever, those come from, um, uh, I believe, Rene de Hinden casts those. But John Susamil, a Border Patrol agent at the time, cast prints that he found across the river, and I think it was in the China Point vicinity. So it's, it would be interesting to find out if uh, the location is in that vicinity because there, that would lend a little bit of credence to the whole, another, uh, yet, yet more credence, I should say, to the Bosberg incidents um, that the creatures keep going back to the same areas, especially if there's a food resource there like trash cans. Yeah, and as far as crossing Lake Roosevelt, right there at that location uh, where you're mentioning, uh, it, Lake Roosevelt is fairly narrow right there. So as far as, yeah, so as far as swimming distance, yeah, that, that is a pretty narrow uh, stretch right there. Yeah, and the, the prints were found, if I, if I remember correctly, the prints were found behind lock gates, maybe on logging land or some sort of private land or state land where no one was allowed to go. But John was there, John, Mr. Susamil was there um, doing his, you know, his, his border patrol duties for whatever, doing what he's, whatever he's doing over there, stopping the Canadians from coming over to the border. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so that, that's an interesting thing. Um at the time, did you go up and take a look around the Bosberg area? No, not at the time. You know, not when things were unfolding. Yeah, you're like 12 or something at the time, so I can see why he may not. When did you actually start Bigfooting? My dad was an avid outdoorsman, and he always said, you know, well, I've, you know, I've hunted all over eastern Washington, and which was not an exaggeration. Um, I've hunted all over eastern Washington, and I've never seen Bigfoot, or, you know, I don't believe in Bigfoot. But... I was keeping, you know, my ears open, my eyes open, you know, that maybe I could, you know, find a track or, or something like that when I was out hunting with my dad and such. So, and then, and then, yeah, of course, it's a, a long process of, of learning techniques or, or, or my approach. Um, I, I wished it would have happened a long time ago. The things that I know now, uh, I wished I would have known years ago. And to, you know, get their curiosity cranked up and, and the things that I do, uh, I have a whole list uh, of things. And so, you know, I'll, I'll play a harmonica, a, a wooden Native American flute. I'm not a musician, but uh, hopefully Bigfoot does not know that, that he's just interested in, in what's going on. I go out with, I have a couple um, uh, uh, wooden hatchet handles attached to my little, you know, day pack backpack and and i'm not doing wood knocks but i'm tapping with them and finally in 2021 in montana i was answered i at dark out out at night and i went tap 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 and i got a response exact 
Oh, they maybe get your pattern. Okay. They reap the pattern, the exact same thing. Yeah, exact pattern. So then I went a little different pattern, tap, 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 and got the exact same response back. And so I was like a you know a little kid at Christmas time opening presents. I was I was like, I'm getting answers. I'm getting answers. You know what year was that? That was in 2021. Okay. And but yeah, like I say, just the, the things that I then that I keep adding to my list, uh, keep doing things. Uh, then over the years uh, to try to get them to come to me and make them curious about what's going on. Um, here's something that that I. I've done for the last few years that I've only heard of one other investigator doing this. And I don't know if you guys have heard of this. Uh, Several years ago, I read that a basketball will produce infrasound. And so I crank up the, the pressure in the, in a basketball and I'm not dribbling it out there in the forest. Um, So what I do is I, I slam it on the hard, compact forest service road, not in the gravel, not in the dust, but where there's a real hard area. And I slam it down on the ground. And I've also done it on bridges that, you know, go across the stream that you drive across the stream. And I mean, it's, it sounds like a giant drum, um, then slamming a basketball like that on a, on a bridge. Have you gotten results by doing that? Well, it, that's, you know, it's hard. Yes. Then, but you know, it's not like a a call that they're going to come running. I wish that would happen one time, but yeah, I mean, I've had, um, uh, that one time where I was doing it on a bridge, um, with a fellow investigator, uh, yeah, the one on that camping trip, that one early morning hours I had stomping outside my tent, something went right by it. And, you know, it vibrated the ground on my air mattress. I could just feel the ground. And I'm like, whoa, I, of course, first thing in the morning, I'm going to be looking for deer tracks or elk tracks. You know, is that a deer that went bounding by? But I get up the next morning and I use the angle of the sun, which is, you know, any, any tracker will, will teach you that, will tell you that too. You know, you want to use the light angle. And I could see these impressions, these footprints in the, the, like tamarack, uh, Western larch, pine needles, uh, ground. And I could see the impressions where something went through there and no elk tracks, no deer tracks, you know, something stomped. And so was that a result of, of them being curious of, of other things that we were doing or, you know, did they, were they way up the Canyon or something? And they heard that basketball, um, or, or felt the interest, uh, infrasound. Um, as you know, infrasound carries very well through vegetation, uh, goes through the ground. Elephants can feel it uh, on the bottom of their feet, then on the ground. And so anything that, you know, like that, I'm going to try to think out of the box. I'm going to try anything new. Now you've had some success. I know, uh, and another thing that you were kind enough to let me borrow is an original cast you got, um, and that original cast came in association with a direct visual observation of a Sasquatch that you had. Um, and if I remember the story correctly, and I think I do, that one was just kind of dumb luck, wasn't it? Or were you doing any of these techniques in the immediate area right before that? 
Yeah, no, this, yeah, this was of all the things that I've, you know, that I've been trying over the years and, and to, to try to make them feel comfortable and, and come into camp at night and come around and hang around camp um, and have them curious about what I'm doing. But yeah, this was dumb luck. And in the Washington Cascades, we, my friend and fellow investigator had, uh, we'd been there in this area a year before and we had heard some things that was enough to like, you know, I said to him, we got to come back. And we were also looking for uh, an area, a spot to have a main base camp for an official BFRO expedition. And that's where we were trying to get up into this one area, this one mountain, because uh, on satellite, we could see there was a wide area there that looked like, you know, we could park cars and it was level enough that, you know, tents could spread out through the trees. So we were going up the mountain and uh, there were two elk uh, standing there. And uh, again, everything moves so fast, wildlife and, and Bigfoot. You know, I tried to pull out my camera and get a picture of these elk, but they moved off. And and remind me to, you know, come back to, to that, about those elk and, and when I get done. But we drove up then and made a right turn, uh, kept going up the mountain the road that we were now on was starting to overgrow with the tree boughs or the tree boughs were starting to overgrow, you know, into the road. And I'm ahead of my friend and fellow investigator. Uh, He was back behind me in his little SUV with his wife. Um, I go up this road and I come around this bend and I look up ahead and on the right, on the left is this large boulder. And I measured it later. It was like, uh, to be specific, it was like three feet, four inches high, three and a half feet wide, extended up the road for uh, four and a half feet. I saw this boulder up ahead, and to my left, the mountainside, the hillside was steeply going up. To my right, it was the drop off. It was the steep, you know, hillside going down. And I noticed some black between that boulder and the hillside going up to the left, but there's, you know, black decaying chunks of wood all over, you know, and I just thought there was, you know, some wood laying there, a chunk of log or something, and I didn't think much of it. And so the road to get around this boulder really narrowed right there. And I've got a, you know, fairly or quite a long truck. And so I'm thinking, okay, I got to ease around this boulder with my pickup here. I don't want to get too close to that right-hand edge. I don't know how soft it is over there or anything like that, but, you know, I can get around it. Um, I can't tell you how fast I was going because I was slowing down. My focus was looking at getting around this boulder. And as I, as I'm looking there to drive around it, this black figure leaps out in front of me and it lands on the right-hand side, the right-hand edge of the road. And there was enough of the tree boughs growing out that all I could see was like this black butt. And it paused there for two or three seconds and then went over the edge. And I'm, and it was black. The hair length was the same as a black bear. But it wasn't a black bear for many reasons. Uh, There was no nose like a bear. There were no ears sticking up. And in fact, there wasn't even any front legs. And there were not any arms sticking out either. And I'll explain that here. So what it reminded me of, the the size of the figure and and what it reminded me of was this as if I was on the side 
looking at a quarterback on the football field, and here comes a linebacker in to sack the quarterback, and he lunges, he leaps. But like I say, there were no arms extended out. And what really twisted my mind was I see this black thing sticking up back down by the the lower back by the rump. And like I say, this thing was airborne in front of me going across the road. And I see this thing sticking up and I'm like, bird wing, you know, raven, crow, what, you know, what is that sticking up? And your mind goes to, you know, common things that you're used to seeing. Well, it took me a while to process, quite a while, um, but I finally realized, oh, its arms were back along its torso, and its one hand was sticking up with the fingers up in the air. And so I saw these, these, these fingers and hands sticking up. So, like I say, that, that really, you know, like, like I say, couldn't figure out for a while, you know, what did I see? What was that? But so... Of course, I stopped, and my friend got out, and I don't even remember what I said to him, and you know uh, what was going on. But he looked over on the edge, the right edge of the road, and he said, "Well, look, there's like two impressions here, where something landed." And I'm like, "Whoa, yeah, it sure does." And I looked over the edge of the hillside, and it was a little bit open right there, uh, through the with no trees right in this spot, and there were this sliding track on the hillside and then below it was another skid mark now if it would have been a bear you should have a right side of the bear and the left side of the bear it should have you know tore up the hillside you know skidded going down that those were the only uh, disturbances to that area were those two places and we walked down to that slide track and at first, you know, you could see like there was like a big toe, but almost more than that, what gave me a, a wow moment was that you could see like a little toe angled outward. And I was just like, whoa, there, there's anatomy here. There's anatomy interacting with the ground. And, you know, the other toes had pushed up dirt because it slid and, you know, pushed up dirt and then, of course, pushed off. And I tried to take pictures, but I always take pictures of anything, you know, that could be a possible track. And, and I try to take pictures from above, from in front, from in back, uh, from both sides. Well, I started to approach the track with my camera and I slipped and slid on my hip on the steep hillside. It, it is very steep. I mean, you, you shared those photographs with me of the print in the ground when it was drying and the general area. I mean, it, it is more than a 45 degree angle there. It is very, at least that's what it looks like in the pictures, at least. It is very, very steep and a lot of sliding going on. Yeah, I'm not sure of, of you know, of, of, the, of the grade or, or the angle of the steepness. I'm not good at those. But, but yeah, I slid on my hip and I'm, you know, and to, to go back up to the road, you know, you're kind of on your doing the thing on your on your toes and your hands. I didn't want to stand straight up uh, again. And I'm just thinking, OK, forget pictures. I need to cast this thing. And I was fairly confident in the, in the consistency of my cast, but it started to run downhill when I was casting the track and I'm, there's this panic and I'm like, Oh no, this is not going to work. Uh, what do I do? Uh, but it turned out okay. The, the, the cast turned out all right. 
And so, yeah, and Cliff was, was great. He made copies uh, of this cast, and he has, it, uh, has a copy on display at the North American Bigfoot Center. And so, yeah, thank you again for, for having a nice display like that. But this is like, and I always like to say, too, and, and, and I, I wrote a little book, too, called Incessantly Bigfooting. And in there, I try to stress that if you can have two or more Bigfoot-related things, you know, happen uh, with an encounter, with either vocalizations, you know, or, or whatever, just, you know, one vocalization you know, one howl, well, there's lots of things in the woods that howl. So, but did you have a howl and wood knocks and a rock thrown at you? Okay, now the scale has tilted towards Bigfoot, big time. So in this case, there was this figure, and I didn't see its face, because like I say, it would have been sideways. And But here's this figure leaping across the road, and, and, and then I got a, a cast uh, as a result of that sighting. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. So back to the elk then too, I, you know, it's like, was this Bigfoot out, you know, looking around at what other wildlife was in the area? Did he bump these elk uh, out of their beds? Uh, This was like 2.30 in the afternoon sunny day were the elk just out you know going to get a drink or had they been bumped by this bigfoot was he walking down this mountain road and was by this boulder and he heard our vehicles coming up the road and of course then to put myself in his place you know i'm playing this over and over you know in my mind thousands of times did he make you know almost a human decision He's sentient, he's smart, he's aware of the surroundings, he hears these vehicles coming, you know, that carry the humans around, and did he think, you know, I've got to hide, and he drops down on all fours behind this boulder, but then the vehicles keep coming, and does he realize in a couple seconds, you know, one of these vehicles is going to be right alongside of me, I got to get out of here, and he leaps out from behind the boulder. Did you stay in the area after that, or did you just, uh, it was a scouting trip. Did you have time to stay in the area after that? We did. Yeah, we got up to where where we wanted to, you know, what we were looking at on the satellite maps, and we got up there, and the snow uh, level was right there. Um, we couldn't go any further, but we did. We camped there um, then, and, and then 10 weeks later, we had an official BFRO expedition back at that spot. How far did you see it travel through the air? It was well in my in my uh, you know pickup truck, half ton truck, and I'm sitting up, and so I'm looking out over the hood. Then it was you know it was at my eye level, it was out there, you know, airborne, leaping across like that. Could you guesstimate how how many feet it jumped? Well, yeah, the road actually there was was no more than ten feet. See, the cast is a little blobby. You know, it's a little blobby, which is fully expected, I think, considering the circumstances. But you can see like strong suggestions of toes, and that, and they are very widely splayed, which I find very impressive. Um, no pun intended, because uh, the thing was going downhill, and if a foot that is about as malleable as your hands are 
came in contact with the ground um, and the toes would splay out facing downhill quite dramatically. And that's exactly what we see in your cast. And you mentioned um, the big, the big toe, um, the, the helix is plainly visible. As is this the small toe as well, and I think that's pretty impressive. Um, yeah, it's a good looking cast, and exactly what I would expect from a big, soft, malleable, padded foot um, on the forty five degree plus slope that you uh, that you had you, you, could, you had to cast this thing on. By the way, that's not those are not easy circumstances to cast a print. Casting a print on that sort of grade is is can be very difficult. So can, I know you were saying, oh, the, the plaster is running down. That you know, you did a great job. You really did a, a great job making that cast, and I'm so happy that you took the time to do it. So many uh, self-professed Bigfoot researchers would have just said, oh man, look at that. That's cool. It's a print, and moved on. But you wanted to record something and bring back some data, and I think that that kind of separates uh, a, a decent investigator from a really good one. So congratulations on that. Oh, thank you so much. And, and, and we've talked to before you and I, Cliff, that, you know, not every track is going to be perfect in mud, you know? And so, yeah, the circumstances with this, uh, on a steep hillside like that. And, you know, so I, and I just recommend everybody out there too, to keep practicing casting anything. You know, I've casted cougar tracks, bear tracks. Uh, I mean, one time I, uh, just for fun, there, there was this wild turkey uh, track in the mud and the little tiny polt, the little tiny chick was following the hen. And so just for fun, you know, I, I casted that. So, you know, cast anything, whatever out there, any wildlife tracks. And then, like I say, you'll, you'll, you'll get the feeling for the consistency and the circumstances, uh, you know, the soil type. And, and in this instance, you know, the, <laughs> the degree of steepness <laughs> then too involved. Yeah. You cannot overemphasize how important practice is on that. Um, I, I'm, I'm often shocked and dismayed that, uh, Bigfoot researchers haven't cast their own footprints. You got to do that or other humans, you know, your, your husbands or wives or whatever, you need to cast human prints. You have to, because first of all, it's good practice because it's a, it, approaching the right size for a Sasquatch print, but also, um, you need to have a, a, a number of samples, um, of human prints in your collection in order to start learning about what, what, um, what differences there would be between a human and a Sasquatch print. Yeah. Good point. And, and as far as the consistency, you know, too, you, you, you'll learn, you know, like I've casted uh, cougar tracks and I've got the claws, you know, so the cast material goes into, you know, where the claws uh, went into the, into the ground. And so you want the right consistency and, and yeah, like say, practice, practice, practice. Yeah. What kind of material do you use for your casts? The dentistone. I love that. Oh, it's pricey. Well, I still have, well, <laughs> this is the advantage of being a veterinarian. I ordered it <laughs> through uh, the, being a veterinary clinic. Then, like I say, I could order uh, order the dentistone that way. And um, so I, I don't know whether I got it at cost or, or what. But, um, but yeah, I stocked up before I retired. Good job looking ahead, man. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you were commenting about um, the consistency of the plaster. And I'll tell you, that's one of the hardest things 
uh, even still, after all this time of my working with plaster and whatnot, and I pour casts every single week, not in the ground, not Bigfoot casts, but, you know, copies of footprints for the, for the museum that we sell here and that sort of thing. Um, the consistency is, is still tough after all this time. I don't get it perfect every time. And there's, and be, but because of my consistency, well, ironically, my consistency of casting, um, I've been able to detect in the field when I'm actually casting a Sasquatch footprint um, and I start mixing up the material, the medium, and I'm, I go, oh, man, this is going to be too thin. Oh, shoot. Or this is going to be too thick. Oh, man. And I got I to gotta add water, take water out. It's, and it's that working all the time with plaster, uh, making copies of footprints or whatever for the museum or for shows or whatever, that, that, that really, really helps me in the field. And that just comes back to the practicing. The consistency can be very tough. If you would have mixed that plaster too thin uh, or the dental stone too thin on that slope, you, you would have failed, straight out failed, because that is far too steep to, um, to do anything um, of substance uh, with, with a thin mix of plaster. So uh, you, I can tell that you practice because that w- those are very difficult casting um, circumstances. Yeah, and you, you know, and you can, of course, if you got a little slope, you know, you can make some kind of a, a dam or, or something like that, you know, out ahead. But I did not want to disturb that at all. I didn't want, you know, I didn't want to ruin it at all. So, like I say, I I did not make a um, a, a dam uh, downhill from it. And you can see that on, you know, on your copy that you have on display at the Bigfoot Center. You know, you can see where my cast material started running downhill and just, you know, and, and then finally was thick enough there that it stopped. And so, yeah, um, it, it, there, and there's formulas, too, you know, for so many ounces of water per kilogram of casting material and things like that. But I... I I would rather, well, I, I pre-bag all my casting material in one kilogram bags. And so I can use so many ounces of water. I can use a water bottle if I want and, and measure ounces of water. But I, I guess I've practiced enough that I feel more confident in just making the consistency that I want to the uh, circumstances you know, on the ground. You're looking at Italian, Italian grandma in the kitchen. She's not using all kinds of measuring devices. She just goes taps into the force. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I was I was going to say pretty much the same thing. I'm whenever I cast, it's like grandma in the kitchen. Like I just kind of have a feel for what needs to be done because I've practiced so much. So again, listeners out there, if you are all interested in ever pulling a footprint cast and being successful, what do you have to lose? A couple bucks for plaster. Start practicing. Start practicing in your own garden. Yeah, the first one I made it fell apart in six months. Yeah, another another very good reason actually to uh, have them copied as soon as you can, um, because now if Kevin if Kevin ever loses that cast or it breaks or something like that, there is a latex mold of that cast, and and it can still be used as data as part of the data set. Kevin, was that your only sighting and only footprint casting event, or have you had another of either of those? No other sightings. Um, I've had. I've casted other things and, and, oh boy, you know, it's, uh, this is where the, excuse me, the bad luck uh, of Bigfooting sometimes comes into play. You know, I've had, I've had where it's like, you know, I'm sure that's a Bigfoot uh, track and and not a bare double step or whatever. And, but the toes land on a stick or something. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's like, you know, so I have some of those. I, I, I have another one from, from Montana where, where it 
it cracked uh, this stick that it stepped on. And, you know, so you, you just cast everything. You, you include the stick in with your casting material. And, but so, yeah, um, like I say, and, and it's tough here in the Pacific Northwest or, or at least, you know, uh, Northeast Washington that, you know, there's just pine needles and everything all over the ground. You've got, you know, the forest floor is, is covered. And so it's, it's hard to find tracks. Yeah, it really is. It really is. Now, Kevin, um, be, be, uh, as, as I guess probably the last segment of our show here, because we're getting to around about that time. Um, tell us about your book. Like, uh, why did you write it, and, and what does it contain? Because I'm embarrassed to say I have not gotten to it yet. Um, it is on my reading list, but I have not gotten to it yet. But it's, it's kind of a, a, a shorter, very friendly book. I have flipped through it. It seems very folksy um, and very, very much like sitting down for a conversation with you, much like what we're doing now. Um, it's very accessible and... and, and it, my understanding is full of stories and perspectives. Is that more or less accurate? Well, yes. Uh, the first, it is an easy read. Uh, it's titled Incessantly Bigfooting. Uh, North American Bigfoot Center uh, carries it also. <laughs> and, but, um, but I wrote it for several reasons. I, I wanted to, uh, I have, the first part of the book is, is more uh, factual. I have in there that I, uh, that I wanted to get the word out about the Roger Patterson history. So that's in there. Uh, there's also another uh, chapter where I have something included in there that I think is almost more rare than a sighting. Um, I refer to it as the interrupted Sasquatch deer hunt. And it's very detailed. The reason it's so detailed is because it's out of my Bigfoot journal. And when, as soon as I got back to camp, uh, after that encounter, I wrote down uh, all these details and, and, and the times that things happened. And so, like I say, you, you can read about that in the book. There's a lot of details there. But so I just I wanted to talk about that. Um, my sighting is included in there. I wanted to talk about that. And so, yeah, the first part then is is true events like that. But then the second half of the book is short stories that are just for fun. My sense of humor kicks in. Um, you'll see this. Um, then I, I, I kind of poke fun at myself and 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 the and bigfooting in general. Uh, you know, and these a lot of the stories are based on on a true event. But I just kind of like I say poke fun, like uh, even at the the trail apps on our phones. And that one time I was out with two of my friends, my fellow investigators, and 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 so I, I poke fun a little bit at technology uh, of what happened there with them. And 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 one short story that I have had received a lot of compliments on is titled uh, "A Letter to Bigfoot from Kevin's Wife." <laughs> So that kind of sums things up, you know, from, uh, from you know, getting her perspective or, 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 or I wrote as if, you know, as if it was from her perspective and it kind of sums up a lot of things. And, and so you can just kind of see though, by that title, uh, that, you know, it's fun. I wanted it to be unique. Uh, then I, I wanted it to be, uh, fun and, and have people get some chuckles out of it. And I think I accomplished that. And so, yeah, it, it's, yeah, it's a fun, uh, fun, easy read. Yeah. And I, I don't know where, where else you can get it besides the NABC, but I know that we sell it for eight bucks. 
So it's 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 a very affordable and apparently a very accessible book, and I look forward to reading it. I'm sorry I have not done so yet. My life is cluttered with other obligations, but um, nonetheless, I will get to it. I can promise you that. Well, I thank you again too for carrying it at the North American Bigfoot Center. Yeah. Oh, happy to, man. Happy to. You're not only a good friend, but you're a good researcher, and we always try to stock the shelves with uh, people who we we know and trust. You know, so. Hey, Kevin, you've been a longtime BFRO investigator. What are some of the more interesting uh, cases you looked into and what are some of like the wildest ones or like hard to like you believe them, but it's just out there. You got anything like that? Well, why don't we save that for overtime, Bobes? Okay. Oh yeah. We're, we're running out of time. Yeah. Yeah. It's been kind of a long, long run already. We're over an hour already. So Kevin, can you stick around a few minutes and talk to us for our member section about some of the um, more interesting BFRO investigations that you have personally investigated? Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Well, with that then, Kevin, let's, let's allow me to thank you for coming on and sparing an hour of your time here, plus a little bit extra that you're going to give us in a few minutes. I uh, really, really do appreciate your time and your expertise and your and everything else you give, including the donations to the NABC. If you, anybody out there would like to see the cast in person, it is on display at the North American Bigfoot Center, as, as well as um, Kevin's personal autographs uh, from Roger Patterson, as well as his certificates from the Northwest uh, Research Association and original copies of Roger Patterson's newsletter, all on display here at the North American Bigfoot Center, if you want to check it out. Um, And so thank you, Kevin, for all of that and more. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. appreciate you showing up here. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you for having me on. All right, folks, we hope you enjoyed the interview with the good doctor, Kevin Llewellyn. Check out his book, Incessantly Bigfooting. It's a pretty good one, good read. We'll see you next week. And until then, y'all keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 